If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 will be there uh, in a little bit. I was going to tell you about our, our Saturday yesterday because yesterday was a different Saturday for us than normal. Normally on Saturday, that's kind of our one day to kind of relax. And um, if we've got things we need to do, we've got places we need to be. That's a that's one of those things that we can do there. Um, but on Saturdays, usually we don't have a lot on the agenda. We don't have a lot on our plate. And yesterday was a little different. Um, Susan is the youngest in her family, kind of of her generation. And one of her cousins, her dad's um, brother's oldest or son, passed away in Kentucky. And so her dad, Susan's dad, is in Brazil on mission trip. Uh, Susan's oldest brother is in Africa on mission trip. And so that left kind of us being the family representatives. And so we went to um, Kentucky yesterday and were there for the funeral. And as a result, we had to get up, get dressed and get out of the house pretty quickly. And it is rare for us as a family to all be dressed up at the same time. And my girls absolutely love when they get dressed up, they want a picture of them, right? Like they get their clothes on and then they say, Daddy, take a picture of us. We look pretty today. And so this is the picture I took of my girls yesterday when they were dressed up, ready for the funeral. And um, you'll notice that um, one of the things that you have, Ava has something around her neck. I really don't know what that is. That is not a fashion choice. Um, and you'll also notice you need to ignore Eli's feet in the background of the picture because apparently Eli did not realize, even though I said we're taking a picture, that we were taking a picture. And so you can see my girls were really excited about being dressed up. And my girls don't know a lot about funerals. And I'm glad about that. We're not a family that has had to take our girls to funerals. I'm glad they don't have funeral protocol and all of that. In fact, um, just last week, um, we had a couple of funerals here at the church. And the first one was on Tuesday. And I came out ready to go to the funeral. And so when, you know, dressed up for the funeral, I was doing the funeral that day. And so I was wearing a full suit with a tie. And I walked out and Maddie, my oldest, said to me, said, Daddy, where are you going? And I said, well, baby, I got to go to work. And she goes, but you're fancy today. And I said, I'm going to a funeral. I said, do you know what a funeral is? And she said, I do. That's where you go dance with all the ladies. And I said, it's not exactly, exactly what a funeral is. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where you've danced with all the ladies, but that's generally not what happened. So I got to thinking just about the whole concept of funerals. People ask me sometimes as a pastor, what, what's the most difficult funeral you've ever done? What's the most difficult funerals you've ever done? And a lot of times, I, I mean, I could tell you about some really hard funerals that I've done. Um, I did the funeral for both of my grandparents. I did the funeral or part of the funeral for my mother-in-law, Susan's mom, who lost her battle with cancer. I did the funeral for a suicide victim that left a young family. I did the funeral for a two-year-old that I was in the hospital room when he died. I can tell you, I've done funerals for very difficult circumstances, but those aren't necessarily the hardest. The difference between the funerals that are hardest for me and the ones that aren't the hardest comes down to really just one word. And it's the word hope. See, the hardest funerals for me to do are for people that don't have any evidence in their life that they were believers in Jesus Christ. And I can't offer to the family any kind of substantial bedrock hope. While the other funerals are difficult, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know that 
There's a future. There's something better. There's something else coming along. And you can give hope. And I've come to understand that in my life and in those situations and in other situations in general, that one of the most important recipes for us to survive is the concept of hope. Now, we're in the book of Daniel and we're looking at over the next few weeks how we survive in a world that's gone to haywire. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our world has gone haywire. Like it has gone crazy. We're not going to mention them, but you could just take the top three or four stories of the week and you realize the fallenness of man, the sunkenness of man, the despair of man in that. And we are in a society where it is no longer sometimes even acceptable. Sometimes it's even difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're looking at the book of Daniel because they were taken out of their home at the age of 14 or 15 years old, planted in this hostile environment and expected to live out their faith in the midst of it. We said last week there are four ways we do that. We have resolve. We talked about last week. Resolve not to do anything that would defame your God. But secondly, you got to have hope. And I'm not talking about kind of the way we use hope today. I'm not talking about this kind of, um, well, I hope, I hope your trip is good. Uh, I hope you mean that. I hope you'll be here when I get back. Or even the positive kind of sayings that we have behind it. Or There's always hope. You see, that gives the essence that it's something we're wishing for, but we're not certain of. In Scripture, that's not what hope is at all. Hope in Scripture is a settled confidence on the character and the sovereignty of God. That's pretty good. If you got a pencil, you may want to write that down somewhere, right? Hope is a settled confidence in the character and the sovereignty of God. Here's the thing. We know God is good. And he is able to do whatever he wants. If he was not one or the other, it wouldn't be that good, right? If God could have all the power in the world but wasn't a good God, that wouldn't be good for us. If God was good and caring but he couldn't do something about it, that's not good for us. But we have a God that is good and sovereign. And what we see in the book of Daniel is a group of guys that have hope. And that hope allows them to take stands that they couldn't otherwise take. Daniel chapter 3 starts this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, it's the same king that was on the throne at the first and we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 1. We don't know when this is in his reign. Some people think it's been a while since chapter 2. Some people think it's right after. It doesn't really matter. But King Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne. Whatever it is, he's forgotten his two previous conversions because he's back to being the one that wants everybody to worship him. Made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. Doesn't that just bless your heart right there? Anybody out here using cubits in your measuring systems? Right? I got me a block of wood. It is one cubit long. I am so excited about that. Anybody in your Bible have how big this is besides cubits? Like in feet? 90 feet by 9 feet. So think of this. Out on a plain of Durat, where it says it is, in the in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So on flat ground, they've got a nine-story building in the middle. Now, I know we live in Middle Tennessee, and it is hilly everywhere, but I grew up in West Tennessee, and it is flat. And when there's something nine stories tall on a flat plain, you can see it for miles around. So he sets it up on the plain. It was probably covered in gold, is what we think. Kibbenezer set to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials 
to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right. Here's the thing. He gets anybody that's important and calls them to come. You don't need to know who the prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, officials are. Just know this. They're all the important people. It'd be like today if they convened a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, of the president, his cabinet, all of Congress, all the justices of the Supreme Court, all the governors, all the state houses, and brought them all to one place. This was everybody that was anybody. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here's the point of all of that. Was that everybody was there. Although if you've read the story, there's one person that's not there, right? Who's not there? Daniel. What's the name of the book? Who's not here? Susan taught vacation Bible school this week, and one of the kids asked her, where was Daniel when they were thrown in the furnace? Well, here's what I, my simple answer was, I don't know. All right. But here's something we do know. He, he never compromised his faith, so he's not the ones bowing down. Most people think, if you look in the chapter before, and you can go back later and do this, that he was set over the house of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, when everybody else went out here, he was the one that stayed behind to take care of the house. So everyone's in the plain of Dura. He's back in the palace so that nobody can come in an army and destroy it all. So they all gather around this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then he says this. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and Harold proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Anybody here? That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, Every kind of music, you would have fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And if you don't, in the next verse, if you don't, then you immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute because it's kind of strange to get our heads around this. They got this nine story statue in the middle of a plain. They gather everybody that's anybody around it and they announce to them all when the horns play, when everything starts, when you hear the music, you bow. And if you don't, there's a furnace over here we're going to throw you into. Most people, most scholars think that the furnace would have been the furnace used to make and melt the gold to put on the statue. It would have been shaped like an old-fashioned milk bottle. I don't know if you remember those, but it had a a base that was wide, and it came to a neck that was thin, and then it widened out again. And inside those furnaces where they melted metal, the degrees inside the furnace could get up to a 1,000 degrees Celsius, which doesn't mean anything to you, because we're Americans and we don't do Celsius. So it's about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Now think about this. A couple of years ago, I did something really stupid. We were warming a cast iron skillet in our oven to cook steaks with. And I reached into a 500 degree oven with a cast iron skillet in it and I grabbed it with my bare hand. I did not eat steak that night. I went to the doctor. Now imagine, if it, I know what it did to my hand. I don't know if you've ever touched anything that was hot. I know what it did to my hand. Imagine something Three and a half times hotter than that. And it's blazing over there. So they make it real clear the consequences. 
I'm going to do a little sidebar here, all right? Especially in light of what the youth have talked about this week. This isn't kind of the thrust of the sermon today, but it is an important part of this passage. And that is this. When the enemy of our soul attacks us, one of the first things he wants us to do is to be distracted from worshiping the one true God in the way we're supposed to worship. And if he can get us to worship something else, if we can get us to send our time and our emotion and our money and our everything we got on something else, then he distracts us from worshiping God. It won't be as bold as this probably in your life. I doubt we're in the, our lifetime are going to have anybody set up a nine-story building in the middle of Nashville and tell us to come bow down to it. But the point here is not, are you bowing down to a golden image? The point is, are you bowing your heart and your life to anything else other than God? The king tries to enact worship from fear. Do this or you'll die. God always comes to us in love. And if in your life you have said anything in your attention, in your time spent, in your finances spent, in the way that you live your life, if you've given your priority to anything over God, you have worshipped that thing. And it is the same as bowing to an idol on the plains of Dura. As soon as the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon. By the way, I have tried to get Jeff to have a trigon in our band. And he just won't do it. And I don't know why. A harp, a bagpipe, every kind of music, all the people's nations, languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Sounds like a great end of the story, but that's not the end of the story. Next verse. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans or some uh, interpretations say astrologers, these were men who were not following the Lord for sure, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. The phrase they're maliciously accused, the actual phrase in the original language is they came forward and ate pieces of the Jews. Way down the line. They came forward and chewed out the Jews. This wasn't just, hey, we got a concern. This is, you're not going to believe what happened. We have got some people we have got taken care of, king. And then he tells them, this is what he, they tell them, this is what they say. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. King, you're great. You're awesome. Remember that thing you said about your statue? Man, that was so awesome, king, when we did that. When I looked around, everybody was bowing. That was awesome, king. You did that. You did great job. Great job, king. And that you said that if anybody, if anybody, anybody, right? You said anybody. If anybody doesn't fall down and worship the image, they're going to be cast in the fiery furnace. Well, there are certain people And we don't want to say we told you so, but you're the one that appointed these Jews over the affairs of Babylon. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They don't worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't do anything. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage. Y'all know what the original language tells us that furious rage means there? It means he was really mad. All right? Commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and the king apparently liked these guys. He wanted to give them one more opportunity. So this is what he tells them. He says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now you're ready. If you'll, I'm going to give you another shot. I'm giving you another chance at this. Any of you parents ever said that to your kids? I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, but I'm going to give you one more chance to do it right. Any of you kids ever had your parents say that? One more chance. 
Okay, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to put the image out there, just the three of you. Now, we don't have to see everybody else doesn't have to see it. This is just you three, all right? We're going to put it down when the song plays, when the, everything, we're going to get the people out there. We're going to do the whole thing again. And when it plays, if you will just kneel down, everything will be all right. It'll be good. We'll forget everything. We'll put it in the past. There'll be no punishment. We'll be good. And then comes, and I know I say, this is like every week I say, this is like my favorite part of the Bible, but this literally is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, one of my favorite statements in the whole thing. This is what they say. He says, first of all, but if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And then who will save you when that happens? This is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, we don't even have to answer to you. Now, y'all didn't react to that statement, but that's a pretty big statement there. I mean, who's the king here? Are you here? Who's the king here? His name's on the board right here, right on the TV. Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's, he's the king, right? In a kingdom, who do you answer to? The king. And they look at him and they say, we don't even have to answer to you. And y'all just are like, oh, okay. Like the Jews would have been, oh, woo, look at that. They're, woo. You burnt. Look at that. Not literally in a minute, but it happens, all right? We have no answer for you in this matter. They said, if this be so, our God, our God, not you, not your people, not your gods, not the things that you worship, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he, now I just want to change a word here because the original language, it doesn't say will. It says the word may. And I think it has more power with may. And he may deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is what they say to him. They say, oh, wait a minute. We don't have to answer to you. That's, you're not our God. We answer to God. And we believe that the God we serve, because of the character that he has, because of the sovereignty that he has, we have a rest assured confidence in him that he will deliver us and can deliver us and he may i don't know about you but in general if i'm going to be thrown into an 1800 degree furnace i'd like a little more assurance than may right reminds me of another one of my favorite passages in scripture when jonathan is armor bearer i preached on it here before they're getting ready and they see the philistines up there and jonathan goes to his armor bearer saul his dad's over there trying to figure out if they're going to go to war and jonathan goes god told us he's going to win hey maybe he's going to do it through us you and me you got it me and you armor bearer and me we're going up there and perhaps god will save us maybe we can hope but here's what i love they are so confident in who god is and the fact that they serve him that they say the fiery furnace doesn't mean anything to us. He may deliver us out of your hand, O king. He may stop it. And then they say this. But if he doesn't, no, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. We're not going to do it. Even if he doesn't save us, we won't. Can I tell you something? When I read this passage of Scripture, first of all, I realize this. Because if I were standing by an 1800 degree furnace that was prepared just for me. You know what I realized reading this story? I'm a wimp, right? Because I'm like, that is not me. Like, when I cook with my dad and the grill gets to like 600 degrees and I stick my head over and it's like, I'm like, woo, it's too much. I can't handle that. Triple that. But I ask myself the question, how do you get there? 
I don't know in my lifetime, in your lifetime, if you or I will ever get to a place where we have to be like that. My prayer is that we don't. But my prayer more than that is that if it does, that I'm able to have the hope they have. A settled confidence in the character and the sovereignty of God that allows them to say, you do what you must, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to bow. So how do you get that hope? How do you develop that hope? How do you find it in your life? Well, first of all, it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ who died for your sins. There is no hope outside of Jesus. Absolutely none. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you haven't been saved by him, then you do not and cannot have the hope outside of him. Cannot. And secondly, develop it in your life through two things. First of all, you avoid things that are going to kill your hope. There's three things that will kill your hope real quickly, all right? And we're going to do these quickly. Three things that are going to kill your hope. First of all is something we call GIGO, G-I-G-O, all right? It's a computer term. You've heard it before probably, but it's simply this garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you put things into your life that are going to deter your hope in Christ away from you, that's what you're going to produce in your life. I mean, people get all kinds of information that they are convinced is true, that it's absolutely not true, and it worries them to death. How many of you here remember Y2K, right? None of you raise your hands down here, right? All right. Y2K, what was supposed to happen at Y2K? Year, Y2K meant year 2000, right? January 1st, 2000. What was supposed to happen? The world shut down, right? Why? Because it's, without getting too detailed, it was written in binary code. Binary code wouldn't know how to translate over to the year 2000. They literally thought that their world was going, economic systems, uh, dams were going to break. They were going to have all kinds of just major tragedy happening. I was in a church in Texas. Uh, I was in seminary. We were in a church in Texas. And there were people in our church that tried to convince our pastor to build a shelter food of food and water for the Y2K crisis. And people build up stuff. So you get bottles of water, you get all the survival stuff. And people, I I was in seminary, but I was getting, this was back before we had Facebook. And so you had to get email, like that's all you had. And so emailing stuff with all these things that were going to happen and the prophecies in scripture about Y2K and all of that stuff. And do you know what happened on Y2K? Well, something did happen. 16 slot machines on the East Coast didn't work. But here's my point. People... It's not just why. I mean, it seems like there's a crisis a month, right? A crisis a week. And if you're consistently consuming the crisis mentality, guess what you think? It's a crisis all the time, everywhere. Now, here's the truth. There were people I respected that said Y2K was going to happen. My point about the whole thing was if it does, I still got God. I know if you turn on Fox News, they're telling you that the world is going to chaos is around the corner because Obama's our president and the Democrats are running this country into the ground. If you turn on MSNBC, they're telling you that the Republicans are going to run this country into the ground. If you don't stop, it's going to be a crisis in America. And I'm not asking which one of those you like or not. But the point is, they get paid lots of money to convince you that crisis is happening everywhere. And if you buy into that stuff all the time, you know what happens to your hope? You think this world is gone it's over nothing good can happen and the point of it is even if an economic collapse came tomorrow even if the supreme court passed a law tomorrow that said i could not preach jesus christ to you openly and freely that something happened with that guess what god is still in control and he is still the one that's going to lead me through and in the midst of that i trust him not our government 
The second thing is myopia. That means only being able to see yourself. Hope killers will just your circumstances here, what's happening right now, what's happening in this moment, what's happening here. Um, you ever talked with like, a, I don't know, a, a five-year-old just for chance, and you've promised them something really good later if they'll forego something right now? Anybody ever had that conversation with them? Right? Like, if you will wait for two hours, we will get this. But I want it now. Because all I can see is now. Right? If you will not, if you will come with us, we will come back and spend a week. If you stay, you're going to spend a day. I want to spend now. Just seeing what's right here. There are a lot of Christians that are myopic in their view. Just right here, right now, all I can see is here. And I want relief now. And amnesia. You know what amnesia is, right? Amnesia in the real, doesn't happen a whole lot in the real world. It happens all the time on TV, right? People can't remember stuff. We forget how good God has been to us. Here's the second thing that can develop that hope. First of all, is to avoid hope killers. Secondly is this, is remember we win. Remember we win. Doesn't matter what the circumstances say now. We win. Part of the book of Daniel, this is the truth. They remember that God's going to win. Even though the Babylonians seem to be in control now, God wins in the end. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, you put us in the furnace, God saves us, we win. We die, we go to be with God, we win. Either way, we win. I have a couple of sports passions in my life. Most of you know them, but I'm a huge Tennessee football fan and any other sport that they're playing well at the moment, which is really not. But we can hope, right? Tennessee football. And everybody knows that about me. I had this, this funeral yesterday was in Kentucky. All of Susan's families are Kentucky fans. And it's just I had to spend a whole day with that, you know, around. It's just horrible. One of them saw Eli. I don't know if you all know this. Eli's pretty tall for his age. And one of them saw Eli. This was... Um, Susan's uncle, he said, if that boy keeps growing, he's going to play for Kentucky, right? I was like, no, no, he's not going to play for Kentucky. He's not. My other passion is St. Louis Cardinal baseball. I mean, I watch Cardinal baseball. I watch it almost every game they played this year. I've watched it. St. Louis Cardinal baseball has been a lot more fun to follow in the last 10 years than Tennessee football. Just a lot more fun. And I remember a couple of years ago, 2011, it was kind of a big deal around the office because I don't know if you know this or not, but Jeanette is a huge Texas Rangers fan. The Rangers and the Cardinals were playing in the World Series, and I was watching it, and it looked like the Cardinals were going to lose. The Rangers had clobbered them in a game. It just didn't look good. They got back to St. Louis. The Rangers were up three games to two. They just had to win one out of two. And in the sixth game of the World Series out of seven games, Cardinals had to win or it was over, and the Rangers win. The Rangers are up by two in the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning, and there are two on Two out, and David Freeze, who's from St. Louis, nobody thought he was going to be a good player. He'd been okay, but never delivered huge kind of hits for them. David Freeze is in the box, and the count is 1-2. And I've watched the Cardinals play this whole stretch, and I love watching them play. And I'm literally at this moment, in my mind, I'm like, I am sticking with them to the end. And it's going to be about 30 seconds, and then we're done. And I'll say, great season, it's over, wonderful, all right? And then this happened. Two men on. Thankfully, Nelson Cruz forgot how to play right field. It still hurts to see Pujols in a Cardinal uniform, by the way. Two runs score. 
Cardinals tie the game, local hero, jumping up and down, the most amazing moment. On the top of the 10th inning, the Rangers score two runs. Season over again, down to the last strike. Cardinals tied it. Go to the bottom of the 11th. First batter up is this kid from St. Louis who had just hit the triple. And in the first batter of the inning, this happens. Home run, 10-9, Cardinals win. I play this just so Jeff has to watch the Cardinals celebrating on the big screens. I love this. He spikes the helmet here in a minute. You know, it's just this pure joy coming out. Now, I watched it live. And I had, wa- I had taped it because you tape these kind of things. And I did not watch this game more than like 25 times in the next three days. Right? I mean, over and over. Because the game seven wasn't much of a game. Cardinals won, win the 11 World Series, and their year 2011 is a big deal. So exciting, all that. But I went back and watched this game. And you know what happened? Every time I put that game in the bottom of the ninth inning with two on and two outs and David Freeze with a one-two count, you know what I didn't do? I didn't worry at all. Like, guess what? He's going to get a triple. We're going to win the game. We're going to win the series. And I know it. It was so much better to watch that game after it was over than during it. Right? Are you, are you here? Are you with me? Any of y'all ever DVR sports and watch it later? Y'all have lost your mind if you don't do that. All right? Because it is so much better. All right? But here's the point. I never worried again whether they were going to win that game because I knew they won. Here's what Scripture teaches us over and over and over again. We win. And no matter what happens to us on this earth, no matter what happens to us individually, God wins and He will restore to us more than we can ask or imagine. And even if they marched in here and said, next week we can't even preach Jesus from this pulpit, we're shutting you down, and the next week I got up here and preached Jesus and they arrested and killed me for doing it, it would not matter because in the end, we win. And that's where hope comes from. How do you live in a world that is ungodly? You live with the hope that is Jesus. This week I put a, a status up on Facebook. And somebody shared it pretty quickly, and we're going to put that picture on the screen. I was doing research for this, and this quote just meant a lot to me. It said, in the meantime, there is one thing the book of Revelation makes clear. Jesus is coming back to set up his eternal kingdom. And when he does, he'll indicate or vindicate his followers and annihilate Satan and the enemies of righteous. Knowing that should change everything about the way we interpret and respond to our current realities. No matter how puzzling they may be, if we've read the book and believe Jesus, we know how the game ends. And that's why I'm an optimist, no matter what the scoreboard says. Now, here's what I love about this. All right, That's an amazing quote, by the way. Really good. Look up in the corner. Do you see it's got a picture and it says Peggy Norris shared this post? All right. Anybody here know Peggy Norris? No, I do. Peggy was in my church in Ripley. Peggy's husband, Joe, was one of my uh, just he is just one of the best guys I've ever met in my life. Joe was the guy that went out visiting with that. Bob West goes out visiting with me, shut ins and people that can't get out. And we go visiting here once a week or every couple of weeks. Joe was that guy in, in Ripley. I had Joe and Leland. They were great. Leland was a former postman. He was a former mailman. He knew every address in the county. 
And then I had Joe, who was a retired pharmacist. And so Leland would drive us and get us there. All the people we went to visit would bring their prescriptions out to Joe and say, what am I taking this for? And we'd spend 45 minutes talking about prescriptions. I'd pray we'd leave. Awesome visit. All right. Joe and Peggy moved when I had about a year left at Ripley. I didn't know I had a year left, but they left about a year before I left Ripley. Moved to Fairfield Glade just east of here, a retirement community. If you look at Peggy's Facebook page, you'll realize that for the last three or four years, Joe has been struggling with dementia. Peggy's several years younger than Joe, and Peggy's still in good health and vibrant, and it's got grandkids. Peggy has spent the last four or five years of her life trying to get Joe to recognize her and her kids. And so when my Facebook feed says, Peggy Norris shared your post about hope, I realize that this woman knows what it means to live with a hope in the midst of puzzling, difficult circumstances. What about you? Maybe you're not there. Maybe a fiery furnace isn't over the horizon. But are you committed to living with hope no matter what the outcome may be? Let's pray together.